When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks for listening to Unburnable. Please help spread the word by sharing online and rating this episode on iTunes. And if you want to find out more about what you can do to support the court case, please visit savethearctic.org forward slash unburnable. We hope you enjoy the episode. We have no alternative but to keep moving with determination. We've gone too far now to turn back. Back, back. The law is so often treated as if it is a static, unchangeable force, whereas the experience of of humanity has always been that if enough people want the law to change, they will change it. That's how they got rid of slavery. That's how we abolished apartheid. It's a dynamic institution. One of the things the law needs to do is to outlaw any further fossil fuel development and exploration. We've got all the oil we can ever burn and still continue to breathe. Richard Harvey is working on November's case as legal counsel for Greenpeace. But he's also a veteran international human rights lawyer. His career spans over four decades and has taken him all over the world. Once I'd started practicing law, I felt it was important to to give back and not just, you know, be making money for doing legal cases. I have cherished the idea of a democratic and free society. I was very actively involved in the anti-apartheid movement. It is an idea for which I am prepared to die. But on Sunday, the 30th of January, several thousand people in Derry marched towards the city centre. From the Bloody Sunday Inquiry in Northern Ireland. They just came in firing. There was no provocation whatsoever. Uh, Firing what, rubber bullets? No, it was lead bullets they fired. It was a very unpopular thing to do, to actually speak out against what the British government was doing. He was a young boy, I would say, about 15. No, he was nothing. He was just just a young boy, about 15. He He was running. I was running too. What happened on Bloody Sunday was both unjustified and unjustifiable. It was wrong. To international criminal tribunals in The Hague. The defense finds you, Radovan Karadzic, guilty. If you're going to make international criminal justice work, then you've got to make sure that the defense is every bit as professional as the prosecution. Recently, however, his career began to take him in a new direction. I live mainly in Amsterdam, working for Greenpeace. And I I came to that back in, what, 2005, 2006. I was thinking, well, what what shall I do next? And the thought struck me that human rights are all very well, as long as there are some humans left to enjoy them. The way things are going with the onslaught of, of climate change and with governments not doing anything like enough to address 
the, the problems that that is creating. I decided that I really wanted to hold governments accountable, to hold corporations accountable, and to protect people from the, the ravages of climate change to the extent to which the law can be a tool in that, in that struggle. On the 14th of November 2017, climate change will have its day in court. After handing out new oil licenses in the Arctic for the first time in 20 years, the government of Norway will face a global alliance of people determined to prove that Arctic oil must be left in the ground as unburnable carbon. If they win, the verdict will have far-reaching outcomes for both Norway and the world. And for the lawyers who've put this unprecedented case together, this court battle will be one of the most important tests of their careers. I think that the case is so important that I, I feel very lucky to be involved and very um, lucky to have such a strong team around us. Someone else who's working on the case with Richard as legal counsel for Greenpeace is Michelle Yonker Argueta. Her upbringing in Central America had a strong influence on her professional path. I think I, I was always very much interested in what was going on in the world. Like, I grew up in Guatemala. And at the time, we had a civil war. And this was in the, in the 80s. Actually, most of Central America and South America was uh, blowing up, largely due to uh, some policies uh, from the U.S. that triggered some uh, internal conflicts in the region. We found terrible devastation. Village after village destroyed, with some of the houses still burning. There were human rights abuses and atrocities being committed by both sides. Of course, the government itself. We found uh, later on that they were responsible for uh, genocide and crimes against humanity in, in Guatemala. But their overwhelming evidence is that it's the Guatemalan troops who are still responsible for most of the massacres. I think that the, the first time I really understood what was happening was when I ended up doing my high school in Tokyo. And if you compare Japan, in the 90s with what, you know, Central America and, and South America were like, it was quite a different rhythm and quite a different uh, just just way of being. And I remember thinking, huh, like that that's what war was like, right? I mean, being in a, in a place that was at peace could make you understand that what you had gone through, what you had lived, what you had seen was not really normal. So I, I guess from early on, I wanted to, to work in human rights. And my, my father, I think, was a big influence, is a big influence still. He negotiated peace treaties in uh, Guatemala and El Salvador. And I went to law school to study international, international law, international human rights. And it wasn't until later on that I began to understand that you really cannot separate environmental destruction from human rights because they're interlinked, especially when it comes to climate change and Arctic destruction. Climate change is a human rights issue. Environmental destruction is also a human rights issue. And the way our laws are written, they're written for men. So they're not written for protecting the environment for the environment's sake. At least now, perhaps they are, but that's now how uh, they came about. So a lot of times, the human rights angle is what, what helps you ensure environmental protection. But nowadays, you just cannot separate it. Though Michelle and Richard generally work on different campaigns within Greenpeace, November's court battle has brought them together to bring the perspective of international law to the case. A lot of lawyers operate very much on their ego, very much as lone wolves in the courtroom. They want to be in charge of everything. Uh, I've never liked that type of approach. I think for either of us in this case, we kick things back and forth between us. 
And frankly, when you're taking on a case as big as this, you want somebody always to have your back. The, the way I tend to put it is that uh, sh she's the lead singer and I do the backup vocals, but a lot of the time we're just there catching each other's back, uh, making sure that we've uh, dotted every I, crossed every T, and that all of the evidence is coming in as, as we want it to come in. The story of the case began back in 2014, when Greenpeace and Nature and Youth, the co-plaintiffs in the case, got a gift from the Norwegian Parliament. Changes made to the Constitution suddenly put environmental human rights in the highest law of the land, in a way which now had real power. This constitutional gift, known as Article 112, opened the door to a new way of fighting climate change in Norway, by bringing a lawsuit against the government itself. Ultimately, however, you still need to find a lawyer in Norway who'd be willing to take on a case as big as this. Someone who'd be willing to argue in court against their own government over oil, one of the country's biggest industries. We got a call here at Greenpeace International in Amsterdam from our colleagues in Norway saying, did we have any contacts with lawyers in Norway who would be able to bring a climate case there? Uh, I went to Norway and by that time they had found a wonderful local lawyer in Oslo, Katrina Hambro. I was the person first appointed to the case by Greenpeace at the time. Finding Katrina Hambro was like finding a needle in a haystack in Norway in terms of their legal system. The Norwegian economy is soaked in oil. And... Uh, that also means that the oil industry is a very large part of the economy and the potential clients. But commercially, uh, there is a sense in the law firms that that might harm them. Maybe they will get fewer new assignments from oil companies if they take on this case. Somebody of her experience and her courage to be able to step up and take on a case against the government uh, you could get a lot of backlash. It was no simple request that we were making of her. I thought it was really interesting. It does not uh, concern only Norwegian law or Norwegian oil industry. It concerns how the future will look for our children and their children again. It was a very cold, grey January day and I showed up at her office together with Truls uh, Gullafsson. Truls Gullafsson is the head of Greenpeace Norway. And we sat down with Katrina and immediately it was clear she knew exactly what she was getting into and she was ready for the fight. She was clear on the theory, clear on the law and uh, she told us very firmly... Yes, I think you've got a case. So we started work then. I came back to Amsterdam and then Michelle arrived. It kind of hit the ground running from day one. I was very thankful for the opportunity. We were going through documents and uh, the last research and trying to ascertain whether it was actually viable to bring this uh, on as a court case to be tested under the Norwegian law. At an early stage, it became clear to Katrina that they needed a second Norwegian lawyer to join the team. 
I heard from lawyers that I know that Emmanuel, who uh, worked at the time in one of the big law firms, was uh, about uh, to quit uh, his position and start in a smaller firm. I contacted him. Hello. We met, and that's how he came along. Yeah, I guess that sums up how I was introduced to this case. Emmanuel Feinberg, who joined the case in August of last year. And for me, saying yes to to join and work with this case was quite an easy question, at least on a personal basis, because it's everything you want with with a case. It's challenging and it's big and it's important. With four lawyers involved in the case, each coming with different backgrounds and areas of expertise, how do you break down the work for a trial as unique as this one? And what is the right mix of personalities to make sure you build the strongest possible case? We are working with uh, Richard Harvey and uh, Michel Jonker Argeta in um, Greenpeace International on this case. So it will be Katrina and Emmanuel actually arguing the case before the judge in the Oslo District Court. We aren't specialists in Norwegian law. They're looking to us for our advice and experience with international human rights and international environmental law. So we work closely together. Of course, we're not in Oslo. We are based in Amsterdam. And once we get a chance to go in a face-to-face meeting in Oslo, then it's incredibly exciting to put all the parts together. They're also uh, scrutinizing our work, uh, our preparation work, and uh, making sure that we are uh, doing our utmost. They're they're both very calm and measured, and uh, I think that's probably a very Norwegian trait. Katrina, when she talks, I really like how she explains things, and she's very articulate. She's incredibly smart. I can get very enthusiastic about arguments, and Emmanuel takes the sceptical role. Not to say that I'm not sceptical at all. I tend to easily think how our opponent will think about this and try to analyze it from their perspective which can be a bit uh, frustrating at some times, I think. <laughs> but I think that makes us more prepared. That uh, sharpens us both. Yeah, I think she's also as uh, conservative as Emmanuel in the way that they always uh, are very careful with how we build our arguments. Um, they're not hippie lawyers like the ones you would find uh, typically arguing these cases. They are uh, quite the opposite, and this is uh, to the advantage of the case, because then if, if they believe an argument is strong, then it is strong. Once you've assembled your team, a huge amount of work is then required to reach even the first step, filing day. A lawsuit is initiated by uh, the plaintiff uh, filing uh, the first writ. Uh, And we did did that in October last year, October 2016. I think there were several meetings uh, to develop the initial, uh, what we call a complaint, but the way we're talking about this case, we call it the writ. So in coming up with the writs that we filed on the 18th of October, there were several meetings. I think the 72 hours before we filed, I remember that I was actually traveling and I just working the entire time uh, and just getting emails back and forth and the, the document back and forth ready to be translated and submitted. It was just like running towards the finish line because at the end of the day, it is, it is a very big case. I think that's true for all major litigation. Up until the very last second before the case gets filed, you're dotting I's, crossing T's, you're making sure that you've got the spelling right, that you've got the citations accurate, and then usually about half an hour after you've filed it all, 
and you're sitting back and saying, phew, I need a cup of tea or something stronger, somebody then points out uh, another typo that you fail to notice. So it's never perfect and you can never sort of sit back, relax and say, well, that's, that's done, it's, it's all put to bed now. I have to say, though, that after filing, there was a, a nice uh, press conference, and I watched it here from the office. I was in Amsterdam. I was not in Oslo. And uh, I think someone has a photo of me. I was literally biting my nails <laughs> as they were speaking. I was just so excited and nervous and so still kind of just shaking, I think, just very excited that this was happening. When, when you ask us how do we as lawyers feel or how will we as lawyers feel, quite frankly, it's when you stand back and watch somebody else doing it that you say, wow, that looks good. When you're doing it yourself, you think, oh, I didn't do that as well as I could have done. It's, you know, we're, we're always very, very self-critical. That moment of watching the lawyers at the press conference and you say, wow, this is really all coming together, it's great. Since filing the case in October 2016, and since production on this series began, a lot has happened. Undeterred by the legal action already being taken against them for the 23rd licensing round, on June 21st, 2017, the Norwegian government announced that it was pressing ahead with the next round, the 24th licensing round. Like the 23rd round before, this went against the advice of even the government's own environment agency and also said that many of the blocks lay too close to the fragile nesting sites of Bear Island. So we find ourselves at Bear Island. This is a nature reserve between northern Norway and Svalbard. A few weeks later, Greenpeace activists travelled to the island to highlight the ecological importance of this untouched landscape. And since it's the only landmass between northern In Norway July, and Greenpeace Svalbard. ship the Arctic Sunrise confronted Statoil's drilling rig, the Song Enabler, for the first time. I recognise your opinion and your right to protest. Um, however, we are engaged in a legal activity approved by the Norwegian government. Late July saw the Norwegian Grandparents Climate Campaign announce that they were going to join the court case on the side of Greenpeace and Nature and Youth. Mostly we are a group of elders. We have uh, former uh, lawyers, uh, former ministers, we have former prime ministers. A whole variety of scholars was trying to uh, make uh, the situation for the, the future coming generation as uh, livable as possible uh, given the time we are in and given the climate change that we are in. And they'll have a former Supreme Court judge speaking on their behalf. When I heard about uh, the new uh, oiled uh, system that they were giving up, I don't suppose you allowed swear words, but I, I, I felt a deep, deep anger. As all the elements of a spy movie... In early August... Evidence emerged that Statoil had been hiring private investigators since 2014 to spy on Greenpeace staff in New Zealand, where the company is also drilling for oil. You see this everywhere, right? You see this all over the world when you have human rights defenders and environmental defenders 
that they are actually under threat. This is a form of, of intimidation. A lot of people were shocked. I mean, I was when I was reading about it, I was like, wow. Greenpeace siege shows them being spied While all this was happening, climate cases across the world gathered together on the Lofoten Islands. Holding our governments accountable, just like... And with a Facebook were. Live event, they assembled one of the largest witness statements in history for November's case. What we're trying to do is to get as many of you to join our campaign, but also... Two weeks later, Morning, Sunrise. a team of activists aboard the Arctic Sunrise delivered a globe inscribed with these messages of defiance to the oil industry itself. Confronting the Sangha enabler for the second time as it drilled in Arctic waters. In September, Norway had a general election. The low oil price, together with concerns over climate change, pushed the debate to centre stage. One of the big things that they have been talking about, and oil and climate. Uh, this is the first time ever where the link between Norwegian oil drilling and our, our global climate challenges has been made clearly as a main topic in the election campaign. That message from the voters warms our hearts. Despite all this, the same government was re-elected. The election result is is uh, much weaker on the sort of uh, centre, red, green, environmental side. I'm feeling a bit disappointed because of the election. Leaving the oil debate in Norway down to November's court case. It's going to be interesting to see how the public discussion is going to be in November around the lawsuit. Only thing that can really stop new licenses in other very vulnerable areas is uh, for us to win the climate lawsuit. Throughout all of this time, the lawyers have been hard at work. The formal claim which Greenpeace and Nature and Youth are making in this case is simple. They want the judge to rule that the new Arctic oil licenses are invalid. For the legal team, however, putting together a case like this is a complex task and involves an intricate mix of both international and domestic law. At its root, we can break it down into two main themes, a constitutional argument and a procedural argument. The constitutional argument maintains that opening new areas of the Arctic for oil drilling violates Article 112 of the Norwegian Constitution, which protects people's right to a healthy environment. Every year the constitution is um, praised and is, uh, we, we have the national holiday, which is the 17th of May, which is the day uh, on which the constitution was, was made. People like walk in the streets and they, they have national dresses on and everybody participates. It's this big national day of, of, of celebration and it's about the constitution. Einstein Vestre, former head of Nature and Youth and legal team lead for Greenpeace. And in that constitution, you have the right to a healthy environment. And this is the right that Nature and Youth and, and Greenpeace are pushing for Norwegian politicians to uphold. In the offices of Nature and Youth, when we, when we celebrated the 17th of May, we used to paint the Article 112 on a banner and stick it to the wall. And it, was, it, of course, looks very good and it's a very strong article. One person who was part of the team which rewrote Norway's constitution in 2014 is former Supreme Court attorney Paul Lawrenson. The new Article 112 came out of this process. In 2014, we had a 200 years of celebration of the Constitution, and then at the same time, the Norwegian Parliament decided that they would take in more of the human rights provisions, 
we are uh, part of the European Human Rights Convention, but we wanted to uh, take it in in the Constitution as well. As elex superior in Latin, that means that it's above all the ordinary legislation and it's uh, binding legal principles for the government and from the parliament and from everyone in the country. And among these provisions also will the environment provision in, in the Constitution. The aim of the provision is to be uh, some sort of to lay down limits on the authorities. And uh, uh, one very important area could be the oil industry. It could be also other things. But uh, it follows from the provision itself that it can be uh, used as a basis for court cases like this. I, I feel stronger and stronger that this is a right that the state has to uphold, which it is important that it's not just a celebratory article, uh, just a, an article made because yeah, it's important to have an article about the climate or about the environment. But uh, an article which is included in the constitution, the founding document of Norway, because it is important and because it is a real right that uh, the citizens of Norway and the citizens of the earth is entitled to. You know, Article 112, as it reads, has a very strong protection of the environment. Article 112. Every person has the right to an environment that is conducive to health and to a natural environment whose productivity and diversity are maintained. It also says in the next sentence that natural resources shall be managed on the basis of comprehensive long-term considerations which will safeguard these rights for future generations as well. So it does not only protect the environment as such, it also protects future generations' right to a sound natural environment. And I think that the latter part is... As far as I know, quite unique in a constitution. To my knowledge, there are several lawsuits, uh, or some at least, in common law systems where you have to fight a battle about what rights does future uh, generations have. We don't really have to fight uh, the battle of whether future generations has uh, constitutional rights uh, relating to the environment, because that is actually stated in the act as such. And that is a very good starting point. Of course, we have to argue why future generations' uh, right to a natural sound uh, environment is at stake. In the last sentence of the, uh, the act, the authorities of the state shall take measures for the implementation of these principles. So the wording shall is, is new and it was altered in uh, 2014 because the paragraph hadn't been used in a way that parliament expected it to be used. It hasn't been given the attention that you would expect. And as a part of trying to to compensate for that, they'll use the word shall instead. I think the point that is most unusual and most significant perhaps for other countries and jurisdictions is going to be how the court looks at this question of what do we mean by the rights of future generations to a clean and healthy environment. This is a a new test uh, in many respects and one which increasingly the world needs to see explained, analysed 
and upheld. So it's one thing to sign the Paris Agreement and to ratify the Paris Agreement, which the Norwegian government was the first developed country to do. It's quite another thing to actually implement it in a way that is not going to deprive our children and our grandchildren of the kind of environment that we have grown up in. We know we can't go on burning unlimited quantities of oil. We've already got enough discovered and in the process of being taken out of the ground. And it's a question of using what is called the precautionary principle under international law. That is, when you don't know for sure that something is not going to harm the environment, then you don't go ahead and carry out risky and dangerous operations like drilling in those frozen waters where nobody has a clue, scientifically speaking, how to clean up an oil spill. It's, frankly, madness. This precautionary principle applies not only to potential oil spills, it also applies to the climate risks of burning more carbon than the world can afford. Judges in 2015 pointed to this principle when they ruled in favour of the landmark case filed by environmental group Urgenda in the Netherlands, forcing the Dutch government to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions. No court in the world had ever ordered a government to cut carbon emissions before, and it marked the beginning of a new era for climate justice. Now, in the Oslo District Court, the government of Norway will be challenged on this principle too. One of the government's main arguments has been that Arctic oil will be profitable for Norway. Now, the world already has enough fossil fuels in existing fields to take us beyond the limits of the Paris Agreement. Norway, together with the rest of the planet, has promised to stick to this plan. But, if the world already has more carbon than we could ever burn, then there shouldn't be any demand for this new oil which the Norwegian government hopes to find in the Arctic. There just shouldn't be any customers for this oil to make it profitable in the future. Indeed, the only way this Arctic oil can be profitable for Norway in the long run is if the world actually fails to stick to the Paris Agreement. So, in effect, the Norwegian government is making a bet against the Paris Agreement, pushing the climate into territory in which the consequences will be out of our control. Though the government is willing to meet Greenpeace and Nature and Youth in court, even assigning the Attorney General to the case, they have still argued that this decision is not for the courts to make. In their notice of defence, the government claimed that, by its very nature, a court process is ill-suited to identifying, investigating and balancing the many conflicting considerations and interests such as those raised by the development of new petroleum areas. Such an issue is better suited to review in technical, administrative and political processes and ultimately democratic channels in the starting, the Norwegian Parliament. Basically, Parliament has already approved these licences and it's not for the courts to contradict this democratically made decision. They are leaning on their claim that the court isn't allowed to overrule their decision. And as with that view, our argumentation isn't relevant. In a very short way, one can say that 
We are fighting a battle on two different fields. They're running over to another field and playing on their own over there. We will continue to play on our field, and I'm sure the judge will help us and say, well, at least you have to have a view on this and that as a secondary line of defense. The principle of the division of powers is also a part of democracy. This goes back to the founding of the Norwegian constitution in 1814 and also much further in the European history, of course. This principle divides power in Norway into three pillars of democracy. The legislative, or the parliament, which passes laws. The executive, or the government, which proposes and enforces laws. And the judiciary, or the courts, which interpret what these laws mean. It's correct that the licensing preparation process was also discussed in Parliament. However, one can't discuss democracy looking upon Parliament's acts alone to opine on whether it's undemocratical or not, that the court is to have a view on this. You can only have a view on that if you analyse all these three aspects of democracy jointly. Parliament, where The court, of course, has power to safeguard uh, that the principles of the constitutions are maintained and that the barriers laid down there are maintained. It's interesting that our local lawyers are quite confident that this is a matter for the courts. It's interesting that the government is, is, may try to play that, that card. They haven't really challenged our standing They do seek to have the judge declare himself incompetent to try this issue. You know, we have different legal systems. And in Norway, you can challenge a government decision. So this is actually a question for the courts. And you will be surprised, even the most conservative uh, legal scholars in Norway have actually come out and expressed their support for, not for arguments, mind you, but for the fact that we have the right to actually have a judge in a Norwegian courtroom hear our case. It's a misleading to call it a democratically made decision when those who are in the parliament have been provided with skewed or inaccurate information that leads them to support the decision. And this is what we are saying happened here. The economic evidence that they were presented with, we have already demonstrated and the government has already admitted was very seriously faulty. This economic assessment was performed in 2013. Oil hit another uh, five-year low today. It's down to about... Before the oil price crash in 2014 and was therefore based on a relatively high oil price, almost $120 a barrel. Made oil prices fall like a stone and However, the licensing decision was adopted by government in 2016 after the oil price had crashed and was at $45 a barrel. In essence, the government made its decision based on numbers which no longer add up, both in terms of jobs and the net economic loss which the Norwegian taxpayer could be faced with. Our, our opinion is that uh, the assessment that was made uh, before making this decision was very kind of influenced by the fact that the state almost took for granted that this will be positive economically. I mean, as far as we can read the preparation documents, they haven't really made a thorough analysis of whether it's actually an issue at all if this will be positive economically. 
So I think that that is the the main kind of uh, perspective. And then when you go into the assessment they have actually done, uh, they have made some assessments. They are definitely uh, flawed. There is no question or no assessment as to whether uh, the fact that the price has been more than halved influenced the assessment that was made before they made the decision. So that's one thing. And, and also there are more technical flaws in the assessment that was made. I won't go into all the details, but they have made easy mistakes uh, when our uh, economic experts went through the assessment that was made. Has the democratic process been misled or has it been followed properly? And that is a matter that courts are perfectly capable of judging by looking, as courts always do, to the evidence. What does the evidence say? This is just a brief snapshot of the much broader legal tapestry behind this case. But ultimately, this trial will mark a global milestone on the journey to fuse environmental rights together with fundamental human rights. When I first started studying international law, human rights was regarded as soft law, not binding on states. That reality from the 1970s resonated with me still in 2000, 2005. And I thought, well, we have got to make the case and we've got to convince people that this isn't kind of some wish list of things we would like to see in a nice world. Uh, It is something that we absolutely have to fight for if people are going to survive in this world. I do have, I guess, more faith than I've ever had in judges uh, in, in my previous work anywhere. I see it as an emerging theme from uh, India and Pakistan through to the Netherlands and uh, parts of the United States, not obviously uh, the White House part of the United States, uh, but the judges are increasingly uh, recognizing that uh, rights must include environmental rights and that if politicians aren't doing their job there, then judges have got to find ways of interpreting human rights to require that politicians do do their job. That the law is asserting the rights of people to a clean and healthy environment. In the final episode, we will be travelling to Oslo, bringing you to the front line of this unique case as it unfolds over seven tense days in the district court. Every case uh, creates its own atmosphere in the courtroom. It can compare, at least uh, to some point, to an exam. I guess I will have my heart in my hands. It is a little bit like a play. You've done a full dress rehearsal and you've learned your lines uh, before you actually step onto the stage. The time for preparation is over. The moment has arrived to argue before the judge and the world that for our own continued humanity, Arctic oil must be left as unburnable carbon. If you've enjoyed listening to Unburnable and feel that this is a story that should be heard, please share online and rate this episode on iTunes. And if you want to find out more about what you can do to support the court case, please visit savethearctic.org forward slash unburnable. 
This episode of Unburnable was brought to you by the team at Radio Wolfgang. It featured Richard Harvey, Michelle Yonker Argueta, Katrina Hambro, Emmanuel Feinberg, Arnstein Bestra, Truls Gullivson, Ingrid Schuldeweyer, Stephanie Meltzer, Paul Lawrenson, Steiner Hoyback, and was narrated by me, Cormac McAuliffe. The producers were Ivor Manley and Cormac McAuliffe. The assistant producer was Natalia Rodriguez. Additional sound recording by Miles Anderson, Amir Barr and Thais Herrero. Sound design by Ivor Manley with original music by Paul Fitzpatrick. The executive producers were Harry Watson and Colm Roach. Thank you.